0: the birds and bees podcast i'm your host sue johnson white cisgendered able-bodied neurotypical person and this podcast is for people who are not part of the bullshit heteronormative binary and i'm joined by my guest bex Mui. um she's an lgbtq and and an equality consultant and spiritual organizer working at the intersections of education Spirituality, mental, and sexual wellness for the whole LGBTQ plus community. You can follow Bex on House of Queer on Instagram or go right to her website, BexMway.com. Um, she also facilitates a virtual student workshop on building healthy LGBTQ plus relationships. And there are several virtual events coming up in this summer for inclusive sexual education. <laughs> I think I got it all. <laughs> but um, what I find most interesting is you have such a diverse background. you you, you were raised Catholic, but you also have for um, uh, have a Buddhist background. Um, you're um, Asian, and are you from, Are you Canadian? I don't know why I feel like you're Canadian. No, I'm American, but uh, <laughs> Polish and Chinese. Polish and chinese okay i don't know why i thought you were thinking <laughs> <laughs> um, but um but it's, but it's interesting because you've gotten a lot of different perspectives and i'm a, that to me is, is why you're so open and inclusive to everybody and making sure that you know that lgbtq people are getting the respect they deserve and the education they deserve especially um, younger kids coming up where you know they're taught the heteronormative basics of sexual activity and that's about it absolutely Um, i'm interested in how you started a new venture during a pandemic because (laughs) that's where is only six months old
1: Six months old. Yes. Yeah, and I'd love to uh, just speak to that first before um, I talk about House of Our Queer, um, a little bit about how I got started in my work and in education. Um, sure. As you mentioned, it is absolutely all the work that I do now as a consultant is really framed on who I am and my experiences in the world so I was raised in a super small town off of Cape Cod and my written and religious background was yeah Catholic and you know I'm Polish Roman Catholic on my mother's side so I was raised very you know um culturally Catholic as well so it's a big part of of us and um you know, I do always say I learned social justice activism from the church, you know, it's, it's really my Mm -hmm. first teacher in community building in how to, you know, have a message that's important to you and to share that with the people that you love. And, um, at the same time, yeah, because I am first generation American on my dad's side, he was born and raised in Malaysia, but we're Chinese, um, And so there was always a little bit of space, even as strict as Catholic can be as, you know, the way, the true and the light, if you will, quote unquote, um, those teachings can be my family and like me always had like a little bit of space for um, other folks. And for my father's way of life, you know, he doesn't practice Buddhism as a religion. Um, It's more of just his approach. And so even that having those two different ideas of, you know, having religion or even just having philosophies and like openness outside of institutions um, is something that I've really held as I continue to do equity work um, in schools and connect with organizations
0: and, and understanding it for myself. Yeah, um, I, I grew up Catholic myself, 10 years of Catholic school, <laughs> also on the East Coast. I'm, I live in uh, upstate New York in the Capital District. Um, but yeah, if, if you ever want to see somebody put into practice, you know, bridging the community Making sure that people were heard and felt, um, and actually giving things to them, like actually having, not just saying, "I'll oh, love thy neighbor," and and if they need, if they need shelter, you know, it, it's just mm-hmm. the activism in Catholicism has always been so surprising and pleasing. Um, so, but I don't belong to the church anymore just because there's a lot of things that I don't like about it <laughs> in, in regards to um, the way that women are not elevated other than to be a sister. So yeah. that's just me. Absolutely. I think there's, you know, I, like I
1: said, my work is in equity and I focus primarily on the school system. And, you know, we understand that that as an institution, it tends to be patriarchal, it is heteronormative, it has all of these limitations that aren't, you know, meeting the larger needs. And yet, like, how do we participate in that system and then ask for better and continue to work towards that. And I think, you know, we see those same threads running through um, religious institutions in our country and around the world. And that's one of the reasons for, you know, for myself as well, especially as like a queer, but, you know, biracial, lesbian, um, cis-ish, femme, you know, I I have, um, you know, don't fit within the container of Catholicism myself and my spiritual Mm -hmm. um, practices and rituals can't fit within that container. And so I do some kind of balance of, you know, being able to honor the things um, that I was taught and some of the rituals that it brings and some of the depths that it brings to spirituality that I have now. while absolutely understanding that it is not a place for me and and honor and being glad that there are folks who are working more closely with the organization to do that activism, because it's not something that I'm called to do or or have the space for myself.
0: Right.
1: Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. But I could talk about um, House of Our Queer in this project yeah. that you uh, mentioned just to answer your early question. earlier question around, um, I did start it just at the beginning of this year, um, and it really puts together this culmination of the last few years of my life of understanding as I was doing um, professionally social justice activism, largely for um, queer and trans inclusion and support in schools, just looking at you you know, one, as a person, how am I filling myself back up? How am I managing my own burnout? Um, And then also seeing that model kind of in community, working with young people and experiencing and seeing their their burnout, you know, working and holding space for 17-year-olds who are like, I've been fighting for so long and I'm done. And, you know, that's very real. Um, I saw that over and over again. And just um, understanding how much it takes to just even work and live through the world when you have marginalized or multiple marginalized identities and um, for me i really saw and i think you know the pandemic and shelter in place and kind of having this experience of having to um one, have more time to sit with ourselves um, than in the old world, and two, really feeling this greater need for something around mental health, around wellness, um, outside of what it had meant um, for me and for, for my community. Um, before is, you know, largely the reasons why I launched this project um, on Instagram in January. And so it's been really um, a wonderful, yeah, just start to something new. And what I also really wanted was to find other folks um, who might be interested in finding a spiritual, ritual practice or community um, within queer and trans folks. And We have this message that, or this idea that it's so different, that there is um, spirituality and religion on one side, and then there Mm -hmm. is LGBTQ identity and activist and leftist ideas on the other side. And, you know, it felt very strange to want to merge these um, ideas and to want to have something that's a spiritual offering coming from the queer community for the queer community. Um, And so that was also part of the reason I used... um, use Instagram to start because I wanted to see who else is interested, who, who my community might be, who I can build with. Um, and so that's part of why I started at then.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, the people that are um, under the LGBTQ umbrella, they've been forever told, you're not welcome in this church, um love the sinner hate the sin which is just a coded way of saying we don't ever want to see you hold hands with your partner or you're never going to get married in this church so mm-hmm. yeah it is a bold move <laughs> too but i but i think people have um hungered for that there there are a lot of i work in um hiv prevention and um mm-hmm. on a community health center but i see that a lot that people of all all walks of life but particularly my lgbtq patients um those and in, in, uh that are have a faith-centered approach they're also um black or latino yeah. um so it's just like oh i've been finally waiting for something like this to come on because i've been hated and shunned and told that i'm <laughs> worthless or god hates me for whatever reason so it was definitely a need
1: Absolutely. And, you know, my belief system is really centered around the beauty and the spaciousness in queer and trans identity. I think there's so much joy um, in, there's so much wisdom and there's so much intuitiveness for queer and trans folks to make it through the heteronormative, cis normative lens in our society mm-hmm. and understand ourselves, even, even as young people. Um, knowing that we are actually um, being able to listen to ourselves outside of an external message. I think there's just such beauty and courageousness in that. And so having for me, you know, having a spiritual practice that understands that at its root, not that is saying, oh, that's okay, or yes, sure, you can bring your partner. But like, is actually rooted in the understanding that you know, cran trans folks have this um, this intuition and have this sense of self and this connection to our body that goes outside of um, what we've been taught and maybe what we've seen in our family um, or the you know family we've been raised in, and just really honoring that as a as a gift is something. I I bring both to my um advocacy work and to the sex ed workshops and, and things that I do, but also to the spiritual approach I have.
0: So how did this brainchild come about?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Part of it is that I've been working um, for the last 10 years in education and advocacy and um, doing a lot of um national work around um, comprehensive sex ed and um, queer inclusive curriculum yeah so (laughs) yes and so from that work getting to work with schools getting to present at conferences getting to work at teacher with teachers um you know it's something that like I mentioned kind of with social justice activism I noticed that both there's there's this need for um I think also an affirmative approach. Something that came from that work for me was also sort of feeling like the boogeyman of LGBTQ and this idea that a lot of activism that I was doing was especially if it was research-based was kind of coming to folks who are outside of the community and saying like, you should care about the the LGBTQ queer and trans people are having these horrible things happen to them and you should care about it. And if you don't, you're a bad person. And like, you're, you need to make these changes because otherwise these bad things are happening. And I do think it's very, very important that we understand what the research is and how strong um, the heteronormative and cisnormative consequences Mm -hmm. are for our community, especially for young people, um, and especially for multiply marginalized identities. Like, queer people with disabilities and queer people of color it's absolutely true and it's important and I also noticed from that work both in doing it and um Also, in working with people and trying to call them in, Um, I just realized that I needed a different approach, which was more focused on affirmation and was also less focused on inclusion, as you mentioned. Not just saying, "Okay, well, here's my um, inclusion, here's my day, here's my lesson." You know, I work. my rainbow flag outside. Yes, absolutely, yes. (laughs) And and having this, um, you know, it's pride. Now I remember LGBTQ people exist and matter, and it's like, and then schools are over because it happens in June. And it's like, well, what have you been doing all year to set this up? Um, so just thinking about that approach and really wanting to do something that was more integrated. Um, and also kind of as you, as you alluded to earlier, a lot of the work I also do is how to um, name the white centering of LGBTQ advocacy and supports and really understand, you know, how a QT BIPOC. Or a queer, trans, um, black, indigenous POC-centred, people of color-centred approach um, can actually be more supportive for the community at large. So just understanding those things also is what led me to wanting to share affirmations um, and just wanting to send them out there. And that's really where House of Our Queer kind of got its start. Um, I do something every Sunday called um, Queer Church and it's just a free IG live um, time. Super short, sometimes, you know, 20 minutes and sometimes longer if I have a conversation with folks, but it's just a space where I um, wanted to bring something from um, my upbringing in going to church and the things I missed, which was coming together and marking time. Um, especially during the pandemic, I felt like, you know, 2021 started and I had this realization, like what has happened to the last year? What, what happened to the last eight months of my life? I can't believe a new year is starting and like time is passing when um, I'm kind of here, not, not being able to market in the usual ways, like when the mm-hmm. world was open. And so a lot of it was also that I, I wanted to be able to mark time and I wanted to be able to do that in community. Um, And so I, every Sunday just went on and was sharing and I also brought in some of the practices that I have like following the moon um, and a little bit of astrology and a little bit of tarot. And so I, I share those every Sunday. And, and, and I always do a reading. So some kind of um, queer and trans poem or, like our queer and trans quote of our like ancestors, transcestors, um, just as a way for us to also be learning from within our community. And I offer some kind of perspective so we can um, sit and consider these other things that make us both feel small and also important and also like wrestle with this big idea that we're kind of in between.
0: I love this so much. You, you've taken something that is very rooted in the patriarchy since forever. And you've molded it into something that people want to experience that they definitely want to be part of. So, cause I get your notifications. <laughs> um, but usually it's like when I'm working out, I'm like, Oh, I can't poke my head in, but I love that you're just, you're embracing everything at all at the same time and making sure that people feel validated and, are do you have are, are you, have you the, 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 I'm having trouble talking <laughs> today no in regards to <laughs> to tarot and astrology do you have a background in any Wiccan practices? Um, is that how you got interested in this or? Uh, thank you for asking.
1: So I will <laughs> absolutely name, I am not an astrologer, uh, nor mm-hmm. uh, um, a professional at tarot. Um, I don't mm-hmm. have quicken practices, although what I will say is I did grow up um, in Massachusetts, like I said, off of Cape Cod, so near Salem, near enough to Salem that I um, <laughs> yeah. I've always learned about witches and um, I will say that like the magical aspect of um, powerful women is also part of how the Catholic church and women were kind of interpreted to me. So Eve Mm. as like the OG witch, you know, um, (laughs) Mary Magdalene as her own witch, like these to me, like femme divine is a big part of my practice. And so witchy rituals um, as a part of that are... um, that's part of how I got into um, astrology and, and into tarot. Um, and also I use those as ways to also connect to the queer community. There's a lot of um, astrology and tarot, you know, as a as a way for us to connect. And I think those things are something that a lot of um, LGBTQ plus folks use because they haven't been historically um, Homophobic and transphobic in the same ways that larger um, ways for us to think about ourselves, to think about how we're connected to the universe, to call in for support um, have been adopted, you know, in by patriarchal places. So. It's, it's largely that. And I and I do try yeah. to give, so like I said, I, there, I don't have um, like a professional background in it. So it's also mm-hmm. kind of allowing folks to learn with me. I, I am, you know, in the process of learning things and also have um, a really expansive approach to them as well. It's one of the things I talk about a lot is not um, trying to move away from sun sign stereotyping. Um, so a lot of which I see a lot in the career community, like I don't date Geminis or like, oh yeah. no, they're a Scorpio X, Y, Z. And um, and, you know, so just also, you know, a lot of the astrology updates that I offer is just how do you um, can have other considerations when you're thinking about compatibility or how do you understand how your Mercury um, ruling sign might affect the way that you are um, showing up in, in
0: partnerships or in, in connections? I love yeah. that so much. I, I also feel like within witchcraft practice it's always been on the fringes of society. Definitely not the societal norm. And I feel like that's why people who are excluded from the mainstream gravitate. That's um, uh, certainly the case of myself. Um, but it, it's, it's a great that you can blend different types of traditions and rituals into a spiritual practice. Uh, I think that's a misconception too, because when you say church, or mass to someone, they kind of they have a very strong reaction. Yes. Whereas you're, you, what you're talking and showing and learning, is more about the practice. And it's great too that you can say I'm not an expert, <laughs> because <laughs> I, I, it makes that it makes you seem more human or not human. Maybe that's not the right word, but like, <laughs> hey, we're all on this journey together. Yeah. Uh,
1: Thank you. And that's important to me, especially around the spiritual offerings that I give. You know, I don't ever want to tell someone how to believe, what to believe, when, who they should, you know, call in when they're asking for support. I think that when we try to make those decisions for someone or try to act like one um, type of support or one type of spiritual practice or one type of belief is, you know, better than another one, it gets very, very sticky. And, you know, especially knowing the queer and trans community, you know, we are a part of every walk of life, experience, culture, religion. And so um, when we, you know, come together or the type of community I'd love to help build um, among us, it must be multi-faith, right? It must have lots of space for um however folks want to call into support and so i like to kind of just use myself an example i do have christian roots because that is you know where i come from and i -hmm. think they can be helpful um because our society is still very christian centered like our government and like our school systems and so i think it's important for us to kind of consider how to reclaim or reframe some christian things um, regardless of how we identify and i talk a lot about reclaiming holidays for example, and just like, how do we reframe these times? Because they are going to happen. We all live here during this time. And you know if we're just like, reject, 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 I wanna pretend this holiday isn't happening and I wanna hide during it. And then um, what I think we actually do is create a lot of um, anxiety in our nervous system and create these times during the year where just us um, are feeling and holding a lot of pain and a lot of anger. And or just feeling like left out and missing something. And so a lot of the, the offerings I do is also, you know, how do we reclaim this? How do we find something to look forward to for ourselves? How do we make sure that we're celebrating pride as a holiday, that we're honoring that time for ourselves, whether you're going out or not, that you are, you know, thinking about the work that's being asked of you, that you're thinking about what you're giving back to yourself. and um, Those kinds of things is something that I, I offer as part of this too. And I think that can help both our mental health, our community building, you know, and then actually just like our physical like bodies and where we can
0: express. Yeah. yeah. So you can give yourself a little bit of a break. <laughs> yes,
1: because we deserve it for sure.
0: <laughs> so from the inception to the launch, what kind of timeframe are we looking at for House of Queer? Um, it was a whim. (laughs) It was both, it was both something that
1: I, I guess I'll say it's definitely something that like I had been thinking and been talking about, you know, how do I bring spirituality into my organizing and my equity work? And, um, I kept thinking I would find folks to, do this in partnership with and eventually you know I think the pandemic and the sitting with myself um like I mentioned kind of the new year coming around this is time I I realized I had to start building so that I could find folks and find the community I'm looking for Um, so it was um, I have like this moment of I you know made this graphic and I was like am I going to share this am I going to press send am I going to actually do this it was a little bit I do have a blog called like coming out as queer and spiritual like I think it did have my own journey around you know how um what is it like to be um more outwardly talking about spiritual practices and even faith you know in um left activist queer community and like what that would Mm. be like and um yeah it is ever since i did it every time that i you know am there on sunday when i'm thinking about um what to share for the week when i'm meeting folks that i have um that i want to bring on to queer church or to other ig live chats um it's really been um such a beautiful process and i feel very excited
0: to see to see where it goes i think a lot of people um when the world was on pause, it, I think a lot of people had all this time with their own thoughts about, wow, this has been just a shit sandwich of a year. <laughs> what, what's gonna, what is going to make me feel happy and want to get out of the bed in the morning or just like, I don't know, just feel fabulous. Yes. And yes. Connected and affirmed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's why I started this podcast too. I had no intentions of, and it was never a thought in my mind, but then I don't know, as soon as like the week, year started winding down, I thought, I just want to do something that mm-hmm. I'm want to nurture and love and put out into the world and have it be good and special. And yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your work. And I'm so grateful to be here having this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I know you have a busy schedule. Um, so thank you for your time I really appreciate it and then with the time difference on the east coast so <laughs> no worries no worries um have in in your regards to working with education in the schools sp- specifically about sexual health um I can speak <laughs> for where I live and that everybody always wants to give pushback like we Yes, we understand that the students need to have this information, but then it's like, well, why does the school have to do it? Why are they inviting Planned Parenthood? Why, 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 why? And then they whittle it down and whittle it down. And it's basically just like a biology lesson mm-hmm. at that point. <laughs> so <laughs> now, so if you're talking about biology, just purely um, the end result of sex <laughs> for stri- for straight people, then you're already excluding anybody who is not heterosexual at all. So that's probably Mm -hmm. what, 50% of people in class? More,
1: yeah. Yeah. Of of things that are taught, yes, for
0: sure. Yeah. So what's that been like for you? Is saying, hey, this needs to definitely be more expanded upon because queer kids are now looking at porn to figure (laughs) out the mechanics of sex. Porn sex is clearly different from what we do in real life. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So much there in that question. I think something um, most of my work is in how to meet administrators, even other educators or Mm -hmm. family communities, and how do we, and to support folks um, who reach out to say, I understand this is important, or I would like to get this done and I need the buy-in. I need to understand how we do this as a community. Because yes, there can be, I could write the most comprehensive, most BIPOC-focused queer and trans lensed lesson curriculum um, in the world and it won't matter if you're teaching that in a school that has no other supports to young people who aren't hearing um, queer and trans affirming messages or who don't understand and haven't been taught about identity about families about their bodies um, in an inclusive way um, in order for these lessons and these ideas to be um to be supported throughout their learning, right? Outside of before and after lessons. Um, so a lot of what I do is yeah, helping folks who are interested in creating more inclusive environments. Um, so there are other systemic supports in the schools, and that includes you know, being able to have administrators who understand the importance of this, who are providing the professional development for the teachers so that they both um, understand what's being asked, they understand why it's important, and they understand how, um, Certain lessons that might be brought in are also um, able to be woven into the rest of the curriculum that they're teaching, so that there is also setting up of the classroom, so there's also their ability to manage what conversations might come up and in discussions and they can interrupt any anti-LGBTQ um, comments that might happen, you know, whether intentionally or unintentionally by their students. And so there's so much that can be, um, that's a part of navigating difficult conversations. And a lot of the work I do is helping folks to distinguish between pushback and questions. Um, right. How do we, you know, a lot of folks will just not do this work um, because there's there's fear that there will be, like you said, a lot of um people who are up in arms. And while that can happen, I'm not going to say that isn't uh, you know, both something I've seen and supported, and understand as an issue. Um, I also think a lot of times it is a fear of that, and and what actually, especially if it's coming from like family, communities, or other colleagues. A lot of times there are just and um, questions about how and why, and making sure that they feel protected and supported by um, the admin or by the district in in moving forward and having actually LGBTQ inclusive, comprehensive, sex ed conversations, even developmentally. Uh, for their students
0: I love that that it was the buy-in like you started at the the, <laughs> the head of the issue mm-hmm. <laughs> instead of trying to navigate around it um that takes a lot of I was gonna say balls but I don't really want to kind of shine oh, away from yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, but that just is a dip I don't know and I don't feel like it's revolutionary or (laughs) no. it's just like, normally you feel, um, I feel like people kind of like, are like, all right, we're going in here we're changing things. Mm. And but you're like, no, let's have a conversation. (laughs) I think that's why,
1: um, the work I'm doing now around spiritual organizing feels so similar to my approach to advocacy, because a lot of it is just being willing to meet with folks, to listen to where they're at, to really hold and understand that, um, especially if you don't identify within queer and trans community, and that's not something that you, or you don't know someone, that you might be um, so far removed from this that you don't have an understanding of what we're actually talking about when we are saying you know queer and trans inclusive things and so much misinformation and so much fear you know I think can be dispelled by just being willing to and and being able to have the time the space and the capacity to sit with folks and find out where they're at what their actual questions are at their root and then trying to work together because at the end of the day. Everyone that I work with, everyone that I've talked to, essentially wants young people to thrive. They want young people. They want their students to learn, to love themselves, to have positive relationships with their um, with themselves, with their bodies, with other yes. folks. You know, I think those are really shared goals. It's just the way that that looks like and the space that's actually needed to do that, particularly to meet Gen Z and the I anticipate the generations that will come afterwards you know with the with their own expansive understanding as a generation on gender on relationships um, in order to meet those needs and really meet young people where they are it's a lot of adult education and adult catching up to um, to meet those needs and so there's can be embarrassment around that there can be fear around that
0: in addition Mm -hmm. to
1: if there are, you know, held beliefs that are um, in conflict with with that. And so just being able to kind of tease out what what is going on there um, is kind of similar to the ministry that I feel like I'm I'm doing around spiritual organizing.
0: I, you know what, it's amazing because it's like you went in there and treated the administration like you wanted to be treated, right? I'm going to hear you out. What, what what's, are, are, are you worried? Are you concerned? Is, yeah, you were just checking in. And I, I just, I remember when I was uh, in high school, a very long time ago, because I'm old. <laughs> um, and uh, there was a lot of the school board was all up in arms. They didn't want certain things taught. They didn't want Planned Parenthood on campus. Um, and I just remembered getting off the school bus and there was like a line of w- workers from the local Planned Parenthood saying, here's some information, um, please take it and do with it what you want. And everyone was just like, oh my God, they're handing out condoms. <laughs> yes. They're giving us information about where to go. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think
1: and there is it's tough at this point in our country, you know, we have such um initial reactions around certain topics. We've like politicized some of these topics, some of these identities and um, so much so oh. that I really think we're we're <laughs> so much farther away from you know from the essence and so that I think that's one of the reasons I like to try to create that space so that we can actually get back to its roots especially because I do so much work in elementary I was a elementary school teacher for 10 years before getting wow. into professional advocacy and that um you know my start in lgbtq inclusive curriculum and teaching is um starts in elementary and so that for me um I know is also a lot of times when folks think about LGBTQ includes and it starts in middle school if you know, maybe high school, maybe college. And, you know, I'm a big proponent and will continue to say to anyone who will listen, it is a real important grounding foundation to start this work in elementary, Uh, especially when we're talking about the sexual health and mental health benefits, making sure that, you know, uh, young people are having an an expansive understanding of families, of gender, of identity, Mm. of um, boundaries and communication, of, um, you know, all all of that information is so critical. And starting that after puberty education is taught is such a disservice
0: to young people. Yeah, we had a patient, we had some really good pediatricians where I work and there was a family child knew from age five that they were not the gender they were assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. And, but the family was so supportive and then got so much um, care and education from our pediatricians so that, (laughs) and then there it was kind of a conflict with the school. So it was just, I just, it was just gratifying to know that some, a mother was listening, a single mother at that was listening to their seven-year-old say, I don't want to wear that underwear. It doesn't feel right. Mm -hmm
1: amazing that's really yeah. the dream and i think listening to our young people being willing to um learn from them and meet them where they're at instead of us as their caregivers as their teachers as their family members you know enforcing and reinforcing things like the gender binary like gendered norms um, <laughs> yeah. onto them when that's not um when they even know at a young age that it's not right
0: yeah i i I think it's, again, down to you're this or that. Mm-hmm. And if you have a young child saying to you, well, I'm neither. I'm in the middle. Um, and then you're immediately dismissing and shutting it down.
1: Yeah. And why not let young people have that space? Why not let them say, you know, and have have the freedom to, you um, to lead that work, to lead that identity, to let it grow and shift and change if it does with them or not. You know, I think that that, um when I think about gender inclusive classrooms, that's really a big part um, of it, of just allowing young people to understand that there is spaciousness in how they want to identify in the names or the pronouns they wanna use, in the clothes they wanna wear, in the things they wanna play with, and the colors they wanna like, all of those things, just um, giving them an opportunity and helping them to think critically about it from a young age, because they will be taught, especially at a young age, um, through the media, through toys, through books, over and over and over again, and what quote-unquote boys are like and what quote-unquote girls are like. Mm. And so being able to help them develop a critical thinking skill at that age when they're being marketed to can really help them to have that foundation, again, before puberty and before middle school and before that time when um, things might be more solidified and it might be harder for them to jump out of something um, that wasn't right from the beginning.
0: I, I'm gonna let you add something that Fraser used which was politicized. And mm-hmm. I definitely feel like the gender spectrum has been politicized mm-hmm. that, yeah, and and if it's not being politicized, then it's being co opted by business and capitalism. Like, yeah, you were super supportive of everybody last month when it was Pride, but now who gives a shit <laughs> about anybody for the rest of the year? So it's just it's just been an interesting time to see how people are standing up and saying, "No, Smirnoff vodka." we're not going to let you perpetuate that every person I mean because if you look at the stats um, people in the LGBTQ community they have higher rates of um, alcohol usage and it's like no you're not going to tap into that because you're going to make a lot of money off of our community Mm. you have to embrace everybody (laughs) from the start I don't know it's Mm -hmm. just gross to me it's just (laughs) capitalism and pride. yeah Yeah. yeah. I love that is that phrase
1: that you invented? Rainbow no, Capitalism? No, that's, a, that's what it's called. Actually, I should look at who. Oh. Who's but yeah, Rainbow Capitalism is definitely something that... It, folks are mindful, uh, especially around pride. And I also see that like as a person who is an LGBTQ consultant, my schedule is so much more packed in June. I am the amount of folks that reach out because they would like a training, because they would like some of my labor, because they would like to have some of this work done. um, Only in this month, you know, it's very um, apparent and, you know, that, I also, I wrote a blog about um, Pride after June from um, inclusion to integration and just giving some advice to more, that was more for um, companies and organizations outside of K-12 schools. But just for folks to start thinking about, yes, what does yes and I'm a big yes and like absolutely. (laughs) We need Pride. We live in a heteronormative world um, that is not yet over. So we do need a month where we are focusing on this. And it's not enough. And it can't just be something that's sold and bought to us. Um, And we want to look at companies that are marketing towards us and seeing what they're doing for their LGBTQ employees, what they're doing with their Mm. money, how their advocacy looks the rest of the year. So I think I'm a big, um, big yes
0: And See, I, that's, (laughs) I'm a cranky feminist. So (laughs) I'm just like, this is what's wrong. We need to crash it all down. And you're more like, no, no. Oh, let's lift each other up. Let's. Get that. Yeah, that's like yes,
1: please. Your money's gonna go somewhere. It, let it go, and also, um, let's let's you know see what we're doing with it and think about who we want to accept that money from and that visibility from, and call on them to do more.
0: Um, last week, I spoke to Andrew Gerza, who is um, queer and disabled, um, and he was telling me the amount of professional work emails he gets are, hey, we're trying to figure this out, Um, be more uh, inclusive to folks with disabilities. Would you mind just, you know, giving us something for free? Just like, what do you think about blah, 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 blah. Do you get a lot of that in your professional dealings? Like, hi, Bex, we know that you're a professional, you've been doing this work for a long time. Do you think you could help us out for free? Absolutely. They probably aren't as blatant about saying, hey, we want one for free. i it's sure it's coded in some way.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it is, it is veiled um, and constant. And I think that that's one of the, one of the things I have learned in doing this work over time is to, um, how to better set my own rates and how to better um, lay out and, and better just even understand for myself what my own capacity is and mm. to determine, you know, how much work a project will actually be for me um, and to ensure that, you know, as like a queer person of color that I am being compensated because I also, um, yeah, if, if possible, everyone wants, not everyone, many, many people right now would like to do the right thing. They would like to be queer and trans inclusive. They want, Or perhaps want not to be called out for doing the wrong thing or want not to be blamed for not being inclusive, um, but aren't don't understand yet that that is actually labor that they need to also look at from a budgeting standpoint, so yes that happens and. um, you know, I think that it's great to have examples like this and podcasts like this to raise awareness for folks and say like, yeah, if you are thinking about doing this work, it does include a budget, like your leadership at your school or at your organization and should be thinking about, you know, how to put, we're talking about rainbow capitalism, it's like put your money towards trainings, put your money towards um, bringing in folks as advisors on projects and um, that way that you can also be, doing this thing and and supporting the activists that are actually
0: involved in this work. When you go in to, I, I'm, you're, you're, I'm sure your work takes you all across the 50 states and probably Washington, DC, right? A lot of DC, yeah. Now virtually, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? There was a workaround. So thank God for that because I know many, many small business owners over the last year, have really had so much financial difficulty during the pandemic. Absolutely. Um, but when you get these, like a real, real legitimate request, like, hey, we need to do this, we'd like to hire you. When you go in and, and see the administrative people or any of the teachers, do you feel like there is fair representation of, well, you, you can't ask people about their sexuality, but do you, do you feel like there's more people at the table that are actually LGBTQ? Um, and not white? Or are you seeing a lot of the same uptight white people? (laughs) The demographics.
1: um, So there are like national studies on the demographics of um, folks who work in schools. And I do follow that and watch that. So the predominant educator, educations like teachers um, in America are predominantly white, straight women. Still, that's mm-hmm. um very absolutely true. Um, and administrators are predominantly white straight men. That's that's mm-hmm. still true. Um, and so I that yeah, my work you know reflects that. Um one thing I will say as a trend that I have noticed that I was very excited to see um was for the first time I saw a school when they were doing hiring explicitly say that they have LGBTQ students and they are interested in hiring like teachers that would model um, these identities and like specifically looking for LGBTQ educators. Um, And I could have cried in that moment. I remember being, um, you know, an educator. I had some horrible experiences and um, being out and not being allowed to be out and that journey as a, especially an elementary school teacher, especially back in the day. And, um, you know, what I'll say, I remember having a conversation with administration who was encouraging me not to bring my partner to events and encouraging that not to share my identity with students or with folks. And they, and I told them, you know, I was like, you know, I am um, biracial Chinese and Polish. And um, when I'm on interviews for teaching, I always mention that I'm Chinese. I always talk about it. It's always important. I know that it is something that folks want to hear when trying to hire me because diversity is important. But I know that Absolutely. this aspect of diversity, when schools are saying diversity at this time in most Still today, they mean race. Um, and we're using this large word, like we understand why diversity is important, right? We want various different, you know, differences where we can learn from each other and we create all of this expansiveness and our understanding and this benefits to the young people we're serving. Um, and I was very honest and very, that I was very aware that this aspect of identity, um, which I also felt like brought so much to the table, brought so much to my students, brought so much to my life, and was not the same, was definitely not treated the same. Mm. And, you know, that, so to see that, just to fast forward 2021, here we are, <laughs> to see that in a school is really exciting. Um, and they're all there is also a lot of statistics and um, research on how LGBTQ educators also are more likely to um, be in, to have supportive actions for LGBTQ students. That they're more likely to have GSAs and run them, to hold space yeah. one-on-one with students, like to help create inclusive classrooms. So you know, irregardless of what we know as just like being diverse and being out and being able to bring our full selves makes us better, you know, educators as well. But that's definitely something that that was a encouraging.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's like, um, so you're, obviously the student population is going to be reflective of the cultures and who's actually living there, who's represented and, you know, you want to see someone who looks like you or the same background as you. And it just, it makes the whole learning process. I mean, (laughs) schools are so clicky as it is, but then to have reach out and have an educator who's like, yeah, I've been there. I've totally been there and this is my experience. And
1: yeah, I think there's a lot of benefit, um, a lot of benefit in that. And I think, you know, without saying it, you know, hetero teachers, out themselves all the time you know Mm -hmm. are every in any way it is because it is so normalized they're you know always kind of talking around especially if they're partnered you know but even if not there's just all these ways that it's baked into their language and what they do and um so just being able to acknowledge that as a school and also see the benefits and having diverse staff I think that's really critical. And it was, I encourage, I'm like, if there are administrators, if there's anyone on hiring, if there are educators listening, you know, thinking about that. And also in terms of sexual health education, like thinking about um, the identities, the background, the experience mm. and the diversity of the sexual health educators in the school um, is a great way to think about how a comprehensive curriculum might be taught. Cause there's one thing to say like, this is the curriculum and these are the lessons. But if the teachers themselves like have diversity or have backgrounds in understanding around diversity um, which includes sexual orientation and gender they're more likely to be able to have conversations with their students that are going to be expansive to meet them in those needs to not accidentally teach them that talking about um, queer identities or trans identities has hesitancy, has um, fear, has uh, means you have to pause, means I need to go and ask somebody, like it just can be normalized in their conversations. Um, And that kind of teaching, those unmentioned teachings can really resonate with our students.
0: Absolutely. I I mean, school is one of the last safe places that most LGBTQ kids have, especially if you're a person of color Um, and they wanna be welcomed and they wanna be treated with respect. um um, one thing I did want to ask about as you are uh, were brought up your first generation Chinese on your father's side I um noticed a lot in my community a lot of people posting and advocating and protesting about stop Asian hate Mm -hmm. because we had Trump in the White House calling it the ch- COVID, the Chinese flu, um, and all a bunch of other disgusting things I and don't even really need to repeat yes, because violence yeah, in our community. Yeah. What's, what's been your perspective on that? Um, has that touched you personally, you and your family?
1: Yes, actually, it's been a really tough year for mm. Chinese Americans, for Chinese people. Oh, yeah. Um, they're, I actually was in Asia visiting my family in Malaysia in 2020 in January Uh and um, brought my, um, you know, older father with me. And it was very scary. Um, And we came back um, at the end of January, just before, you know, being quarantined, I flew through China, you know, and to see my family and it's been very challenging to be far away from them during this time. And to know that we might not, you know, I don't know when we'll be able to like go see them again in person and I've had some losses and things. Um, I'm so sorry. And it's okay. Thank you. And and I think that, you know, one of the things that it brought up for me, especially in regards to social justice advocacy and work is, you know, I was raised um, in a very white town. If You know, if the Cape, it has to be named, uh, it is uh, 97, statistically 97% white and the Is white, really? My, my, my town. And it's, um, yes. And it's, uh, the, um, and that whiteness was also very, very wealthy. So whiteness to me, as I was raised also meant like owning your own horses and skis and like giant house. Like it, it, there wasn't a difference. I didn't understand, you know, growing up that just was what whiteness was. So I was always raised um, in opposition to that. Um, and, my, there was a lot of anti-Chinese, um, anti-East Asian discrimination and hate crimes when I was a kid um, in my oh. hometown. And, you know, a lot of things also just even from, from those larger things, but also to just smaller things like people never being able to say my father's name and people, you know, losing a cat and coming to the house to ask if he had eaten it like these kinds of things you know how was how i was raised and we don't really talk about that and a lot of times you know in social justice work it's very very important and i want to just also completely frame and name you know centering black and indigenous folks in um in racial anti-racist movements is absolutely important Um, and i like am in solidarity with that work and i see that um, but it has been an experience to feel like I don't know where this fits within anti-racist movements, and I don't know where it fits. It's not white, and where does it belong? And when is this um discrimination like fit within these things? So that's mm-hmm. kind of been a thought or a, part of my experience and part of mixed kids experience. Always talk about we just kind of like don't really belong anywhere, we're always kind of a little bit in a group, a yeah. little bit out of a group, you know, and there's like freedom and space and joy in that and there's like challenges in that um as well so all to say that this year um seeing like the stop asian hate uh solidarity and movement especially a lot of the crimes especially against asian elders were happening during chinese new year and it was you know which is such a beautiful oh, yeah. and important holiday and such a sad one for us because we couldn't you know celebrate in ways that we in the past so yeah, it's been a tough year um I definitely think that having a spiritual practice and being able to share on House of Our Queer and like show rituals is was an incredible grounding part for me and one of my spiritual practices is um, honoring my elders and I have a uh, altar for my grandparents and oh. every morning I give them incense and I uh, have intention with them and, and continue our support for, you know, and our connection, um, even though they've left the, this like, world, um, in physical form. And that's been a really important, um, practice for me during this. so time.
0: lovely. Yeah. I think that when the norm <laughs> the people that are not going to be ever part of this podcast when you talk about racism or race baiting they automatically think of a black person a particular probably a man but and I and I feel like because I was reading the stats as well a close friend of mine is also um, biracial um she's caucasian and um and chinese as well um and she was printing these really great articles out there that she was reading, like from NPR and all over the place, BBC. And I was like, yeah, this people really diminish Asian people in the US. And we never ever talk about it. Um, and it's usually like, oh, it's just a joke or, you know, making fun mm-hmm. of somebody's accent or um, making stupid comments about cats. And like, I was right. like, yeah, th- there's so much crime. and.'" And really extreme violence uh, towards Asian people, particularly since the pandemic, but it's not reported on. We don't hear about it every day. When it's in truth, we could. Um, Yeah, and I think it's it's complicated, right?
1: Because there is also, especially East Asian, you know, there is especially in more recent, you know, history, and and it's. Its proximity to whiteness, um, culturally and um, and like physically, like that has also led. Le- there is privileges within, like particularly East Asian um, communities benefiting from white supremacy and in by by proximity and so there's also that so it's like understanding that those things are true things that black and brown folks are not able to access Um, and so just holding that as well and while also like i say yes and like how do we understand like the importance of centering black and indigenous folks latinx folks in anti-racist movements and then also understanding that there is a difference between being asian and white that there is still um, you know, the need for Asian solidarity and particularly, like mm-hmm. I mentioned, Chinese folks um, during this time.
0: Yeah. Um, speaking about Cape um, Cod, uh, when I was very young, we used to go camping on Martha's Vineyard, which you cannot do right. anymore. <laughs> Martha's <laughs> Vineyard's gotten way too expensive. It's very shishy. Um, there are
1: seven towns on Martha's Vineyard, actually, as an island.
0: Yeah, it... But I have some very fond memories of going there from like the late 70s and early. I think the last year we were there was like 1987. So I have wonderful memories about it. Um, but one thing I didn't learn until I was an adult, <laughs> probably about 10-ish years ago, was that there were lots of indigenous and American Indian populations all through the Cape, all over Nantaka, yeah, all, all over Marcus like
1: especially. Yeah.
0: And, but they got pushed out by white people. And I, and I was like, why, why did I never think of that before? You know, because it it wasn't taught to me. (laughs) It's again, it's been, and, um, a lot of, it's something that we ignore because white people are embarrassed about it clearly. Um, Mm -hmm. it's the same reason why a lot of people, including myself, didn't know up until two years ago about in the 1930s, that black wall street was completely obliterated by white people. But yeah. knowing that two years ago, I'm in my 40s. That's insane that we didn't hear about this until, well, I'm, people in the Black community obviously knew about it, but. <laughs> right, that it didn't reach. Well, I
1: think that's one of the reasons that Gen Z has such a different um, perspective to history, to learning, to self, because there is they're being raised at a time when there is so much availability of information in ways that we didn't have. Yes, when we were growing up and there were singular news sources. Um, you know, my parents would watch at 6 p.m. and here's built one, you know, news source will tell us what happened that day and that was enough. Right. And now there's, you know, some, there are challenges with there being such a plethora of information and with us holding so many things that are, um, challenging and hard and need to be changed at the same time. And also it's a real gift to um, have that access of information and even to be in a time when we are thinking, what was I taught? What was I not taught? What is actually like the truth and how do we um rethink about some of the things that we were taught and that we accept as being true or we accept as being normalized quote unquote um, because now we can and we have that information and that's that's part of why I created um decolonizing gender as a online mini course for the anti-racist educator institution and it's a way for us to bring back that history when we're thinking about um how to create gender inclusive classrooms and understanding that that work should also be done in an anti-racist context and understanding that the land that was here yes the Wampanos and the east coast and then all yeah. you know 10 million tribes here on um, yeah. It was often called Turtle Island. Just understanding that there was life here that was not der- in did not have these same heteronormative cisnormative norms. Um, understanding a little bit about the history of how it was, you know, violently brought here, enforced intentionally, particularly the gender binary, and just understanding that what we're doing when we're creating gender inclusive classrooms today is more of a return to ways that people have lived and existed um, versus like a new hip whatever quote unquote thing that young people have just thought of suddenly out of the blue and <laughs> are asking educators for no explicable reason like a trend <laughs> you know to yeah. handle and just you know really helping for folks to see that history that's been so intentionally erased.
0: Yeah absolutely and when you reframe it because part of my white privilege is that and that these things never occurred to me. Mm-hmm. I don't have to think about them. But then when you, when you really stop for five seconds and look around, so um, not to make this about me, but so I won't include any backstory, but um, I was watching um, a little clip on, on you, where was it? Instagram. Um, um, a registered dietitian who's a black woman and her stance is all about decolonizing your plate. Because it's for so long white registered dietitians are telling black communities who have higher rates of heart disease and diabetes, it's that food you're eating. Um you you shouldn't be eating anything that's fried. You should not be eating anything that, oh, too much rice, too much beans, this, that, the third. And I was like, that's actually really that's true. We we do police. Um People's bodies in that way particularly Mm. if they're not white
1: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and just how to understand that we don't need to be held to also like white beauty standards that those Mm -hmm. are you know absolutely a tool and a weapon as well and you know that also for thinking about sexual health education as a healthier relationship to ourselves, to our bodies, and to other folks, you know, increasing what we see as beauty, what we see, you know, um, normalizing comfort, normalizing, you know, also, if you look at fat activism, um, over yeah. time, which is an incredible, um, the work that's being done there, um, just, yeah, I'm understanding how all of those things are connected to trying to create inclusive schools, trying to create inclusive curriculum, mm-hmm. letting young people, like we've said, just be who they are and, um, not try to change themselves to fit some other type of normalized standard.
0: Yeah. I think that's a big takeaway for really it's been pushed down people's throats from, you know, the beginning because we're capitalist based society. So we have lots of advertisements and they're cashing in on the the white beauty standard Mm -hmm. and it's gross. It's gross. (laughs) It's
1: detrimental to mental health. It's detrimental to our young people. It's not representative of people and where they are of our young people and where they are. So yeah, I think absolutely having, um, you know, the opportunity for young people to examine media images, you know, as part of curriculum to like examine what they're being told they should be how they should look. You know, all of that work can be done with a queer and trans affirming lens, but it's really for everyone. That's really important for all young people to be able to notice the ways they're going to be marketed and how to better build their own intuition, building and checking in with themselves for that alignment, rather than seeking it from yeah, a, a box or a magazine or being being sold to them.
0: Yeah. I can definitely say from, um, so in New York State Department of Health, especially in the city, they, <laughs> so, so the New York State Department of Health covers everything except for the five boroughs, because, so there's so much money in its higher population amount, but they have done such a great job in having people that, number one, are LGBTQ, number two, Black and Latino and Asian, and um having so they're there actually helping to make the decisions because if you're okay, so let's say um HIV diagnosis that that impacts Black and Latino youth aged 18 to 24. They're the highest rates of, of new infections in New York State. So they have people of that experience actually saying, this is what I want to see. And then actually having it come to fruition, they've had so many successful campaigns, because those were the people that were leading that particular subcommittee. So much bureaucracy in the department. <laughs> I won't even get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and it just, I was like, wow, I'm really actually excited to be a New Yorker. And then not only that, it was people of different ages, because a lot of people were complaining. It's like, oh well it's a nice healthy young person up there what about someone who's older or someone who's disabled Mm -hmm. um so they take all these things into consideration before they put the product out um but at the same time that i really it makes me worried about places that don't have that support um particularly down south um where there's not a whole lot of sexual education being, even the cursory stuff, isn't really being taught the way it should. Yeah,
1: absolutely. there is a rollback, um, particularly now, it'll be interesting to see what happens in maybe a, a school year that isn't so focused on the pandemic and pandemic recovery. I think there's a lot of, um, it's interesting to watch education right now. There's both a lot of Harm, And there's a lot of, um, you know, laws being passed, where you can't teach about identity, where you can't talk about race, where you can't talk about like, there's um, lots of new Ooh. things that are not serving young people and what we're trying to envision here together right, and the work that we're doing of more information of letting young people have the space to be who they are. Um, But also there is, um, I think, a lot of opportunity right now because of the pandemic, because what we saw was these systems um, crash and be paused, and it really illuminated what was already always present, the inequity in education, the inequity in um, different types of schools, particularly like schools that are not, that are more um, black and brown centered that are not having the resources that you're seeing in perhaps private schools or schools that are with more white students and in white communities and all of those things who had access to the internet who had their own computer who was able to get a laptop to their own who had family members that could be at home to help them be- with their homework because they weren't maybe a single parent who was working a lot of jobs like all of that was always true um, but was uh, we weren't able to ignore it um, during this last time, this last eighteen months. So, I'm really curious um, what happens this school year. But I think also like in the coming school years, from all the information that has come up and hoping that we see some of the um, some of the, the changes that we're trying to see, particularly around you know comprehensive sex ed, around inclusive curriculum. I think there's a lot of opportunity for those things to move forward um, as, the, as the world comes back.
0: I actually think that that's a huge thing to highlight is number one, is there a shared computer device in your home? Mm-hmm. Is there going to be, I mean, that for me is huge because that's a, that's a lot of, that's like a big push from grants. It's like, oh, we should all be tech savvy. We should have patients should be able to get us at 24 seven and we should be able to text them and, and confirm this and da 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 I'm like, okay, well, I I would say like 25% of my patients probably don't have a smartphone right now. So mm-hmm. what, why are you thinking in such a small lens?
1: Right, and it's like like you were mentioning, it so depends on who is making the supports. What is the background of the folks in power who is designing these programs, who's designing the curriculums, who's passing the um, saying yes or no to what's being taught, to what's being offered, and if those folks don't aren't in community with and don't have a background in understanding equity and society institutionally and community-based, you're not going to be able to make the decisions that will best serve um, everyone in the community, especially the folks that might be the most system impacted that might need it yeah. the
0: most. Yeah. Yeah. Oh.
1: In case you thought this this would be a a, light conversation. I just want to come in here with my systemic oppression and my patriarchal lenses. But if I will, if I will, if I can, that is also one of the reasons that I switched to doing spiritual activism. I I actually wrote a piece for the advocate on um, spirituality as a a queer, um, trans, especially POC, um, mental health support. And just looking at the ways in which, you know, without that's something if folks if we can help young people and folks in our community to and in the queer and trans community to build our own intuition making to build our own sense of self worth and self-esteem to understand how to ask for support to direct and manifest our lives in ways that make sense that make us feel in control and also how to be okay with not being control and not feeling alone. And even if we are being isolated or socially distanced, like all of those supports are things if we can build in um, our community. I think that that can be such a tremendous mental health support outside of looking for And um, while we wait for institutions to change, to shift, while we wait for norms to change, while that work is being done um, and we continue to work in it, but also things that they can't take from us and that they can't sell us, that can't be um, bought at a store, you know, and that can't be removed by a policy. I,
0: right. I, I think definitely the newer generations coming up have done a lot to break those stigmas about mental health. Um, Absolutely. Again, another patriarchal capitalist <laughs> system, the yeah, mental health true. field. Um, but yeah, I, I really feel like we actually have done a lot of, well, we <laughs> we, we have done a lot of work to break down those barriers. It's like, yes. number one, you're not a weak person if you ask for help no matter what anybody has told you as a kid. And number two, you aren't crazy if you ask to see a therapist. I think those are the two biggest things that we were really butting. Also too, um, men asking for help, Mm. Uh, particularly young um, LGBTQ black men who really Mm. sort of straddling this line of, well, my family thinks I'm crazy, and or I don't want them to think I'm crazy because I need therapy, but I don't know anything about it and I don't want to ask for help. And absolutely, it
1: repeats my um, yeah, bipolar runs in my family and is something that you know, my I had to you know, watch my family be treat quote unquote treated honestly for um you know in the cape in the 70s and the 80s and you know when we not only didn't have like you're mentioning like an understanding of removing stigma from mental health supports but also the supports themselves um were really inefficient and Ugh, yeah. not things that I think would have ever happened if we had lived in a city or that would definitely not be happening and prescribed today and so yeah growing up in the that kind of environment and really also understanding this is something that's a really big deal and a really big part of my family and also something that we don't talk about and it's never a mention or not allowed to mention it, you know, right. that kind of disconnect. And then also feeling like I wasn't as my own person, I was really discouraged from, um seeing therapy or from their from getting mental health supports that I actually needed as a teenager uh, because the idea was like this was other people had mental health things in our family but not us and not young people and right. not me and and just really that misunderstanding of like everyone needing and can being able to benefit from therapy from supports from whatever you know our journeys might be and kind of removing that that stigma um I think that there's, I absolutely credit Gen Z with the change and my goodness, if we could ever learn a thing as adults from these young people, their ability to I think in in such a quick amount of time, honestly, shift that um that normalization of therapy, yeah. shift the normalization of mental health, of owning um you know mental illness and different mental and mental disabilities as you know identities and identifiers as building community around. it. So it's been a really awe inspiring and. I don't know, part of my life, part of my work, something I definitely bring into comprehensive sex ed curriculum when I'm thinking about it as well.
0: No, I, I, I 100% on board. I know that they get a lot of flack for being, not being taken seriously, but I think definitely we're, we're going to see a lot of more breakthroughs and, and breaking those stigmas on mental health. Um And I think that that's actually a really nice place to end our conversation instead of uh, (laughs) reeling against the stupid (laughs) societal norms. Um, Thank you, Bex. I really, really appreciate this. I will put all of your information. Well, it's your website. I will put your website and I'll put the uh, Instagram tags for House of Queer uh, in the show notes. I'm so sorry. House of our Queer. And I knew that too. I was like, don't screw it up, don't screw it up. And it came out wrong anyway. Um, (laughs) Feedback makes this show get better. So (laughs) please send me anything that you would like. Or if you'd like to share your own story, you can email me at birdsandbeespod.gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram at birdsandbeespod. And you can find House of Our Queer on Instagram as well. And um, be kind to yourself. I mean, it. thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Thank you. Bye.